really spiritual ones, okay? It is spring break. It is freezing out according to Texas standards. It was raining today. There's all sorts of South by is going on, and y'all are here. So kudos. Time change? Yeah, I forgot about that. So yeah, kudos to y'all. So you get an extra uh, jewel in heaven when you get there, all right? <laughs> Um, man, it is good to be here with you all this morning. Uh, I love you guys. I love this church a whole lot, and I just am so thankful for what the Lord is doing uh, in the midst of our church. And so, uh, yeah, just really thankful for all that. And um, the family that God is surrounding the body with, uh, you guys are just such a huge blessing uh, to the community as a whole and to each other. And so I just want to say I love you guys. I love being a part of this church. This is uh, exciting to jump into this together. Okay. After all that mushy, on to more misery and destruction. This is uh, the last part of our three-week series uh, on this part of Genesis, and which really focuses on the depravity of man. Really what you see from Genesis chapter 3 to Genesis chapter 11 is kind of this spiral out of control as people spend more and more time away from the presence and the fragrance of God and who he is. And so what ends up happening is you get this picture of what it looks like when people kind of first forsake God or shove him out of their lives. And we know that this is true even in our own life, that as we spend time away from our king, that this happens to our hearts too. That this story isn't just a story about society as a whole, but even our own individual hearts are impacted with this uh, message that as we spend time away from God and who he is, man, things get dark, things get confused, things, there's judgment, we get scattered amongst. And so uh, this story is for us as much as it is a reflection even of our culture, uh, of our own church, and, and the dangers that it is to walk away from God, and etc. So hopefully this has been encouraging, even though it has been a, a, a harder series, I would say, to walk through. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Uh, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 11 today. That's where we'll camp out uh, most of the day. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be some under every second and third chair somewhere around you. If you don't own a Bible, please take and keep that. That's our gift to you. We want you to have the word. We say that every week. And so um, please take that home with you and, and you can use that for your own personal study. You can also follow along on your smartphone. If you have the Uversion app, you can go under events, type in the Well Austin. You can follow along that way. Or you could take this link, put it right into your browser, uh, and you can follow along that way. A bunch of notes today. And so we uh, don't want you getting lost. And so we would encourage you to find some way either to look at the word physically uh, there in front of you or on the Uversion or something like that so that you can see these are the very words of God. Uh, we're not kind of making this up, that we think that this is God speaking to us about how we can know and love him more. So um, as you're turning to Genesis 11, if you uh, have a physical Bible in front of you, you can see that in Genesis chapter 10, we have another genealogy text, okay? And we're really covering 10 and 11 today. Uh, and so there's another genealogy there. So we're not doing another genealogy sermon, all right? So you can not fret there. We've actually done two genealogy sermons in the past two and a half months. If we did another one, I'm pretty sure we'd break the Guinness World Records for the most genealogy sermons by a church. But uh, there is a lot within that genealogy that we don't want you to miss uh, as we're kind of walking into it. And so I do want to note a couple of things here, and it will kind of set precedence for where we're going to be spending the bulk of our time today. So first of all, if you look uh, in that genealogy, you don't have to count, but there are 70 names that are mentioned. In 
in what is usually considered what some people call the table of nations. The reason they call it that is because uh, this is uh, what scripture is saying, how the population has spread throughout all of the earth. And so Noah was left with his three sons and all of their wives, and boom, here comes the spread of the world. So this is called the table of nations by a lot of scholars. There are 70 names there, and as we've mentioned, oftentimes in Genesis, there's all this numerology that happens all throughout Genesis. The author is trying to communicate more than just a practical number, but rather some theology behind that. And so seven is the number of completion or perfection, and 10 is also the other Hebrew number for completion or perfection. So seven and 10, seven times 10 is 70. So hence you have 70 names. So in other words, this is trying to show us, hey, this is a a complete, a a perfect, a holistic view of what it looks like as the people begin to spread abroad. Now, one of the things that we know is that this isn't necessarily trying to give us perfect historical data of the lineage of each of the sons of Noah. There are other genealogies that literally walk through father after father after father to show us that we can trust that scripture is a historical fact, that we can compare this with other narratives. But in this one, what you actually see is it's just trying to show you more of a theological framework in reference than a historical and a practical framework and reference. You tracking with that? And so in this uh, genealogy, in the 70 names, there are actually people groups, there are tongues or tribes, uh, there's even places that are mentioned. And so this isn't necessarily a he begat him who begat him who begat him, as a lot of our genealogies are, but rather it's trying to set up our mind, a framework from which we're going to work out of here in a second. So uh, that's one of them. Also, as Paul mentioned, our organic church growth strategy. If you are pregnant, here's 70 names. You can start off with, okay? And so just make sure you avoid names like Nimrod, all right? Don't name your child that, okay? Um, Furthermore, there are a bunch of other sevens in the midst of this. So Japheth has seven sons and seven grandsons. Uh, Ham has seven descendants of Cush and Mizraim. Uh, Shem to Eber is 14 sons or seven times two, seven and seven. And so there are a bunch of other ones that are in here. But the turning point actually comes in Genesis chapter 10, verse 25. So that's the only uh, verse we'll read from this. So if you're there, let's go there. Genesis chapter 10, verse 25, it says this. To Eber uh, were born two sons, and then the name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Now, it doesn't sound like much, but there are two kind of important things here. First of all, uh, the name uh, Hebrew apparently derived from Eber, actually. It's the same uh, root word. And so really, to some extent, you get the father of the Hebrews here and Eber. And we know that because uh, Eber is actually the great, great, great grandfather of Abraham, whose story we're going to dive into next week. And so really, in Eber, what you get is the beginning of God's redemptive name narrative through humanity that God is going to bring a savior. And we know the end of the story that it came through the Jewish nation, that the Jewish nation may be a blessing to all the nations around them. So Eber has one part of his lineage that goes off and ends up fathering Abraham and David and Moses and all the other greats, a lot of them whom we'll get to in the 
rest of this Genesis series. The other one, though, Jacques Tan, ended up being responsible for the story that we're going to read today, which is the Tower of Babel. He was kind of the main culprit, if you will, of a lot of what we're going to read this morning. So you kind of get these two lines, the elect line and the non-elect line, a lot of people would call it. And we're going to look at the second portion of that, the Jacques Tan line today. All right, so Genesis chapter 11, uh, stemming out of Eber's sons, we get this story. Pick it up in verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone and bitmen for, for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, there are several things here. We'll get into a few of them in a second. But first of all, we notice almost right away, who is the subject of all of these sentences? Us, right? Ourselves. Let us make a name for ourselves. Let, let us, and it's very self or inward focused in a lot of ways. In fact, uh, Abraham Caravella, who's a professor at DTS, he says this. He says, four first person plural cohortives, let us make bricks, let us burn, let us build, and let us make once again. Uh, and the two reflexive, reflexive expressions for ourselves make the Babylites' self-interest and conceit very clear. Now, almost every week we've been showing how, in a lot of ways, Genesis is just kind of repeating the same narrative over and over and over again to kind of show humanity is stuck in this, what we called in the earlier, vicious cycle of sin without God. And so uh, we keep making the same mistakes over and over and over again. So Cain is a worse Adam in a lot of ways, or even as we looked at last week, Noah is essentially just a second Adam. God made the world, tried to bless them, Noah and ends up drinking or eating of the fruit, ending up naked and ashamed, curses his sons, etc. So Noah, in a lot of ways, is just another example of Adam. Seth is an Abel replacement after Abel died, and in a lot of ways, uh, Shem is a Seth replacement here, as he now carries forth the blessing of the promise of Genesis 3, chapter 15, that a Messiah would come into the world. So if Noah is a second Adam, which we looked at last week, then this week what we're going to see is that in a lot of ways, the Babylites, the tower builders, were actually just second Cain's, okay? There's a second Adam and Noah, and there's a second Cain here in these. So uh, both parties, if you look at the chart that's on the screen, both parties migrate east, it says of Cain and the Babylites, both find and dwell, and those are the two main verbs that are used in both of those stories, both build cities to establish a secure place and really meaningful existence without God, both fear wandering, both are proud manufacturers, as we'll see in a second, both are judged and they're forced to migrate, and yet both continue to propagate under the Lord's blessing. They continue to expand and have more kids. And so in a lot of ways, uh, the Babylites are really just a second story of Cain that as you try to do things without the blessing, without the providence, without the obedience of the Lord, you're going to end up in the same situation that Cain is. And by the way, you don't want to be a second Cain. Okay, that's not a great biblical hero to be, right? But the Babylites are really just second Cains. Furthermore, which we'll get in 
into more next week, but if you want to take a peek in some of what we'll be reading next week, in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, literally two verses into the Abrahamic narrative, right? Like, like we're barely into how God is going to redeem humanity, and immediately God tells Abraham that he's going to make Abraham's name great, that he might be a blessing to the nations around him, that he's going to bless and honor and almost uplift Abraham, that he may be able to be a blessing. He's going to make Abraham's name great. But the Babylonians, instead of seeking the uh, grace and mercy of God, they ended up trying to make a great name for themselves, right? So God promises, I'm going to make your name great, Abraham, so that you may be a blessing. But the Babylonians, they tried to make a great name in and of themselves. And so you see these contrasting differences between what it looks like to follow God and align under his uh, uh, power, under his sovereignty, really under obedience to him, and what it looks like to kind of rebel against that. The negative aspects of the tower builders are pretty clear here in scripture. It's painting them in a very, very, very negative picture. We could get more into kind of their pomp and kind of their arrogance, uh, which we actually will in a second, but let's keep reading our text. So verse five, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they purpose to uh, do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Okay, now there's a ton here too. But first of all, scripture is in a lot of ways loaded with very cheap shot ironies here about the Babylonians. Okay, one of them is that in verse two, it says that they're trying to build a tower that reaches into the heavens. But in verse two, it says that they are building it in the plains of Shinar. All right, now, question. I'm not an engineer or an architect like it seems like half our congregation is, okay? But if you are trying to build a tower to reach into the heavens, where is a good place to start? Like a little bit higher, right? The plains is kind of like the lowest valley. So I don't know if that will structurally work as well if you're up higher, but it seems like if you want to build this massive monument, you start a little bit higher than literally one of the lowest places on the earth, which is where this story takes place. So they already are kind of starting off at a disadvantage, and I think that scripture highlights that on purpose. This isn't a smart plan. But furthermore, they're trying to reach into heaven, okay? And did you catch the irony of the story here? They're trying to reach into the heaven to make a name for themselves. And the God, who is the name above every name, whose only name really matters, who actually dwells in heaven, can't even see their puny and petite tower, so much so that he has to come down to earth to see what they are doing, right? Do you read that, right? Because that's what's going on there. They say, let us build a tower to get up into heaven. And God says, hey, let us go down because we can't really see what's going on. And then we'll finally see this peeny, tiny, little, cute structure that's going on, right? It makes all my sarcastic friends say amen, okay? Now, obviously, God is omnipresent. Obviously, he's omniscient. He sees, he knows everything. He doesn't have to come down in this way, but it's really showing the futility of their efforts here that God can't even see what's going on, and he has to come down to look at it. What's even more is that the scriptures actually gives us the main point of the story in the structure of the text. So if you look 
look, there's a chart here. It may be a little bit hard for you to see if you're further back, but this is what is called chiasm, and it happens all throughout Genesis. And really what's going on is it's trying to show us the thrust of the story here. Exactly what the tower builders were trying to do. They all had one language. They settled together. They said to one another. They said, come make bricks. When the Lord comes down, which is the center point of the story, he utterly reverses all of their plans. And so it is the exact opposite if you look at the A, A, B, B, etc. When God is talking to the Holy Spirit, to Jesus, to his counsel in heaven, he says, hey, come let us confuse them. He literally is setting an exact reverse of what they were trying to do in the first place. They were trying to build a tower to get up into heaven, and they ended up having no city and scattered amongst all of the world. God completely reversed what they were trying to do. The uh, 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 poetic thrust here is really, really cool. I was, in, I was like encouraged when I saw this. Encouraged that God's judgment isn't a good thing, right? I was just encouraged the scripture lays it out so poetically for us to be able to see, right? So he's trying to show us what's going on. Furthermore, uh, this happens with all of them, but if you look at some of them, like the D, Right Up here it says, come now, let us make bricks. But then God says, come now, let us confuse. Uh, the Hebrew word for let us make bricks is uh, LBN. I have no idea how to say that. L- all right, however you say that, all right? <laughs> However, God confuses their language and it's nabul or whatever, how you say it without verbs. Do you see what's going on there? An exact reverse, once again, N B or L-B-N, N-B-L. Those are utter reverses. And it happens all throughout this. Scripture is being very poetic and trying to show us in a very intricate way that their plans are not going to succeed because this is not what the Lord's plan was. God is going to get his way. So he literally completely reverses their plan, even in the word choice that's used, the word for bricks and the word confuse. You can actually use different Hebrew words for that, but they purposely use those words to try to show God is utterly reversed what they are going on. Now, what's happening is, is that uh, a lot of people would kind of think, well, well, what's wrong with like building a tower? We see some of their pomp, some of their arrogance, some of their self-interest, but is it wrong to build a tower necessarily? And the answer is to some extent, no, but what we have going on here is that they are clearly trying to disobey what God had already told them before they started this process. Do you remember several weeks ago when we were looking at Cain and God told Cain that he will be a wanderer? And then literally the next verse that says Cain settled. Like, no, 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 I'm not listening to you, God, right? I'm going to settle. And one of my uh, hypotheses to that was that, man, maybe God was going to meet Cain in the desert as he's wandering around. Maybe it humbles him and it forces him to seek God, but instead he wants to make a name for himself. Well, here also in this story of the Babylonians, we have a clear disobedience to what God had called them to do. If you remember last week when we were looking at the Noah story, God gave this command over and over and over again. If you go back one page or two pages in your Bible to Genesis chapter 9, let's look at one of the instances of what God said to Noah. Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, it says, And God blessed Noah and his sons, okay, so this isn't just a Noahic blessing, but it's a sonship blessing too, and said to them, Noah and his sons, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, right? 
go amongst all the earth. And it actually says this four times in the Noah narrative to fill the earth, to repopulate the earth, to scatter abroad throughout the earth. And so over and over, we see what God's intention was with Noah and his sons, which was to scatter amongst the earth. And by doing that, they will be a blessing to the earth and a blessing to the people around them. And then literally the next story that we get, once again, they're like, no, 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 we're not doing that. We're going to stay where we are and we're going to build a city and we're going to make a name for ourselves. We're not going to scatter around. So they were completely rejecting the commands of God. God commanded them very clearly to do one thing. And they said, no, I'm going to do something else. In case we don't think that's the point of the story, if you read the last two verses, it'll make it clear again. Verse 8 and 9. So the Lord dispersed them from over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over all the face of the earth. Twice it says the Lord dispersed them amongst over all the face of the earth. Like, in case you didn't get it in verse 8, let me repeat this again in verse 9. I am going to scatter them, right? That's what the Lord says. They are going to scatter amongst the earth. So what does this mean for us? What does this story kind of kind of land? How, how do we even apply a story like this, okay? Well, there's only one application point that I can think of, that I can see from the story that's clear to us today, okay? And it's really, really simple. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. Uh, God's will is going to be accomplished no matter what, <laughs> okay? God's will is going to be accomplished no matter what. All right, God is going to get his way because he's sovereign and he's in control and he's above all things. God's plans cannot be thwarted by human counsel, no matter how much they try to reject the very plans of God. Now, what a lot of people will say in an instance like this is, well, what about human freedom? Like, what do we do with, you know, God has given us a free will and, and there's truth to that, okay? And here's how I think that this story even answers this in a lot of ways for us, where we see the sovereignty of God, the complete control of God, but also the freedom of man. God is sovereign. He's in control. His will is going to be done. And you can either submit to God's will. And in that submission, like Shem's line, like Japheth's line, you can submit to God's will. You can find blessing. You can find favor. You can find delight in the Lord as you submit to the will of God. Or you could try to do your own thing. God's will is still going to be accomplished, and God will show himself through your judgment, through your confusion, through your scattering, through your disobedience. He will show himself strong, powerful. So we get the mercy, the grace, the love of God, or the holiness, the strength, the justice of God. And literally, our freedom is we get to choose which one of these lanes we want to walk in. You tracking with that? Uh, let me, let me uh, a story is probably easier. So um, there was a, a guy who was on the Acts 29 board. His name's Darren Patrick. And Acts 29 is one of the two associations that the well is a part of, Hill Country uh, Association being the other one. So Acts 29, Darren Patrick is on the board. And Darren Patrick uh, was known for writing all of these books about uh, uh, how to love your wife well. Like, and he was very famous for saying, look, don't cheat on your wife with the church, right? Young pastors, like, like spend more time shepherding your family than the body of Christ. And he wrote these books on it. And then his other kind of main topic was be a humble guy. Like, be humble. He even wrote a book called The Dude's Guide to Manhood. All right? That probably says a lot in and of itself of the name, right? Here's a dude's guide, a real way for you to be humble, for you to serve those around you, to lay down your life, et cetera, et cetera. Well, two years ago about, Darren Patrick got removed off of the Acts 29 board because he was arrogant 
He was not humble, and he and his wife were about to go through a divorce because he was not spending enough time with her, okay? Literally, I have read like four of this man's books, and in all the books, there's all these underlinings and circlings, and man, yeah, that's so right, right? And then all of a sudden, right, in his own home life, he is not fulfilling what he's preaching about in some of these books, and so God exposes this sin and then lays him forth as an example. And so Darren Patrick, in a lot of ways, had a choice. He can either be God's mouthpiece and display what we should do through his own example and through his words, love your wife, be humble, serve others, right? But when it comes out, his whole staff said he's abrasive, he's non-responsive, he doesn't really shepherd or listen to people well, he's not humble. And so his wife is saying, look, man, we're on the verge of divorce, like we need to stop, we need counseling. So he gets removed off and now all of a sudden he's a negative example doing what? the exact same thing that his mouth was doing before. What's the point to this? I think that God wanted to use Darren Patrick to tell younger pastors, love your wives, right? Serve them, be humble, don't be proud, don't be arrogant. And either Darren Patrick could have walked this route and done it through his example in his mouth, or he could have walked this route and done it through his negative example, God exposing him. And either way, what happens? God's will is accomplished for Darren Patrick's life. Right? You're tracking with that? He gets the opportunity to choose which one of those paths he wants to walk down. And so no matter what, God's will is going to be accomplished. We just get to decide whether we want this route or whether we want this route. But the plan of God cannot be thwarted by human counsel. God says to Noah, not as a suggestion, but as a command, fill the earth. And two of Noah's sons kind of went and did that. They start scattering amongst the earth and they receive God's blessing. But one of them decided, no, 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 we're going to build a tower. And God said, that's fine. And then scatter them amongst the earth anyway. No matter what, God's will is going to be accomplished. And so instead of rebelling, we can choose to be submissive to the will of God. The real question is, which side of the fence do we want to be on? And I think that's what this story is kind of highlighting for us in a lot of ways. Are we going to submit to God's will? Are we going to listen to him, right? Verse 8 and 9 giving us the thrust of the story. They scattered, they scattered, they scattered, right? God's will is going to be accomplished is what that text is telling us. I've told this story before, but I remember very clearly um, I was uh, in college at like a leadership uh, training thing out in Colorado. It's actually where I met my wife at. And I'm sitting there, uh, we're having a church service, and man, the worship is just like kicking. Like, you know those times where it's like, man, this is it, you know? So I'm standing there like praising the Lord, all in the zone, you know? And uh, you know how you could tell when somebody's looking at you? Like, you could just tell somebody's staring at me, you know? So I'm like, yo, man, I'm trying to be in the spirit, get up out of here staring at me, whoever this is. And I kind of like opened one eye, didn't want to lose the Holy Spirit, you know? Only opened one eye. And I saw that uh, there was a girl that was at the camp uh, who had a mental disability. And so she was about 30 years old, but she uh, acted as if she was about three. She never progressed past that. So her dad was with her and they often sat in the front row. And she was turned around. I was in the second row and she was turned around. And she was just like staring at me. So I was like, oh, like that, whatever, that's cool, you know. So I kind of reclosed my eyes and... Then I felt very, 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 very clearly the Lord impressed upon me, said, lay hands on her and pray for her healing. And I was like, yeah, no, Lord, I'm just trying to worship you. <laughs> right? I ain't doing this. So I'm trying to sing how great is that or whatever song it is. And I feel, right, I feel like he told me again, lay hands on her and pray for her healing. And I was like, I'm literally not doing that. So I don't know what's going on here, right, but I'm not going to do that. 
I felt like one more time he said, lay hands on her. And I said, no. And then I literally felt like I heard the Lord say to me, okay. And okay is the phrase you don't want to hear from the Lord. All right. So I, no, oh wait, no, 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 Lord. No, no, no. Uh, I'll do it. I'll do it. But like, like, Give me a sign, like, like when I open my eyes, like let her be like this or something, you know. And I'm trying to like debate with God, and I really felt like he was, that was it. There was no more communication, okay. So I open my eyes, I'm having this kind of debate. Our chairs are kind of angled so I can see the back of the room. And out of the back, I see this guy really awkwardly from the middle of the back get out of the aisle and come all the way down up front and talk to the dad and then lay hands on this girl and starts praying for her healing. And I'm like, yo, this girl's going to be like, I'm healed. And that was supposed to be me, right? And so I'm like, what am I doing? I'm watching, I'm watching, I'm watching. And uh, he prayed, amen, nothing's happening. And then the dad, through tears, said, you have no idea how much I needed that today to remember that God will one day restore her body fully and that people around me want to see that happen even now, that to, to be whole, to be what God has created us. He starts going on and on. He said, the whole day today I was struggling with how God had made my child. God has made her as a gift. And he's just like weeping, you know. And I'm sitting there like, man, it wasn't for me and my glory, obviously. It wasn't even for her healing. It was for the dad who had been having a hard time. God knew what he was doing, right? Now, what happened? Where is my part in the story? I can either decide to be obedient to the will of God or I can reject that and through that lose God's favor, lose the blessing. Like hearing what he was saying to that man, that would have been reviving to my own soul to hear that. But instead, I allowed somebody else. And who knows, maybe God had tapped four or five people before he talked to me. And if that man didn't respond, maybe he would have tapped everybody in the room. And if nobody were responded, he would have made the rocks come up and lay hands on that woman. Because if nobody responds, the rocks will cry out the glory of the Lord right? God's will is going to be accomplished no matter what. We just get to decide how we are going to interact within that. Are we going to be submissive to the will of God? Are we going to let him move in our lives? Are we going to find ourselves in the favor of his blessing, which really the blessing is more of his presence, more of his goodness, understanding, being able to see him more? Or are we going to try to build our own towers? Are we going to try to do our own thing? Say no to the will of God. Now, Here's the trick within this, okay? And we do this all the time in scripture. All of us want to be Shem and Shem's sons, right? But if we're honest, aren't most of us the tower builders? <laughs> like, like, aren't most of us the Babylites if, if we're really honest with ourselves? Like, like, how often do you reject what God is calling you to do? You know, maybe you read scripture and you see that it calls out something specifically about your life, but you don't want to submit to that. Why? Because that's hard. Maybe the Spirit is impressing something upon you, right? Share the gospel with this person or go confess your sins to this person or, man, go be accountable here or go bless this person with this or whatever it may be. And you're like, no, right? Like, like I don't understand what's going on. I, I don't get why you would do that. It kind of makes sense that they didn't want to scatter amongst the earth, but they couldn't see the plans of God that through that scattering would actually be the gathering back together when the kingdom comes finally. But they didn't see that. They couldn't foresee that. So out of fear or distrust or whatever it may have been, they were saying no to the will of God. And don't we do that? I mean, am I the only one, right, that wrestles with that? Like when I hear God calling me to do certain things, I just say no to them often. Or even worse, I don't hear God calling because I'm not listening for his call. And so I do things on my own and then make my own plan and then ask God to bless that plan. 
rather than seeking the plan of God in the first place, right? And so in a lot of ways, we are the tower builders. Like when it gets hard, do you really submit to the will of God? Like, like when it's really difficult, when it grates against the very nature of who you are, do you submit to that? When it goes against your feelings, we're such a feeling-based culture, right? Like, like what about when the word of God goes against your feelings? Do you submit to that? What about when God calls you to do something and you have no idea why he's calling you to do it and then he tells you to do it anyway and does not give you a reason for why he's calling you to do it? Like, can I get an amen there? Right? Like, I want to know, God, what are you doing here? And he says, I want you to be obedient to me. Right? Like, we can choose which of these paths we're going to go down. We're either going to be uh, uh, Babel builders, we're going to build our own tower, or we're going to follow the will of God. Man, we try to make plans all the time. We try to build our own little towers and be in control. And essentially, what the story is, is this the story of Eden again? Eden to the fall in a lot of ways. God creates the world. Man falls. Man sins. Because of that, there's judgment. And then he has to scatter on east. God sends him east. God recreates the world with Noah. Man falls. Man sins. Man heads east. And then just like Adam tries to be their own God. We are all, what this is telling us, Cain at times in our sin and in our rebellion. We are Adam. We try to hide from God or be our own gods. And scripture says, this is not where your blessing is. This is not where the presence of the Lord is. This is not what God has created you. And here's the beautiful thing about this text that we know. Because of Jesus's death and resurrection from the cross for our sins, there is great, 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 great hope here, okay? Not just because we get the forgiveness of sins, though that is a thousand percent true, yes, amen, hallelujah. Not just because we get reconnected with the God of the universe, though this is a hundred percent true, yes, amen, hallelujah. Not just for a right relationship with God, but listen, we actually get every single thing that the tower builders were hoping for. Their desires weren't wrong. We say that often, right? Our internal desires are actually hardwired in us by God that we would get to experience this. So what they desired wasn't wrong, but the way they were going about it was wrong because they weren't trusting God. But because of what Christ did on the cross, we actually get the very thing that they were hoping for. Let's go to Revelation chapter 21 to finish our time. This is the second to last chapter in the Bible, the last book in the Bible. And in Revelation chapter 21, we get this beautiful story. I'm going to pick it up here in verse 1. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. In Revelation chapter 20 to chapter 22, the last three chapters of the Bible, we see, even as this text tells us, that God is preparing a place for us. He is creating a new city, a new Jerusalem. 
And the tower builders were trying to build a city that reached up into heaven that they may have eternality in some ways, that they may be uh, uh, immortal in some ways. But the scripture tells us that the real plan of God isn't for us to build a city that reaches up into heaven, but rather for a city from heaven to come down onto earth that God may dwell where we are. We don't have to work our way to climb up into heaven, but rather God comes down to earth to establish his home with us. He will be our God and we will be his people. This is a beautiful story. Even more, there will be no more tears, no more suffering, no more pain. This is redemption to its fullest extent. The tower builders wanted this. They wanted heaven. They were just trying to get it themselves. And God said, no, no, no. I'm going to bring heaven down. This is the truth of the story. Even more than this, they said, let us make a name for ourselves. The, the tower builders wanted a name, right? Well, in the book of Revelation as well, Scripture makes it very plain that when we go stand before Jesus, he will give us a new name, a name that we will have for all of eternity, and our names will be remembered in the household of God. Even more than that, Jesus will give us a name, and he'll put a rock in front of us that says that a name that is special between us and Jesus alone. Like every single person who calls upon Christ will get a name that just Jesus will call them, and they will be known by that, and we won't know each other's name. Right? Like, you're talking with that? Like, like I call Natalie certain pet names that I will never say to any of y'all. Right? Not because I don't love you, but hey, it's just awkward, right? But you ain't my boo or whatever I call her, right? Like that's her. That's between me and her. Why? Because we have this special intimate relationship. You get that with Jesus. Like your true husband gives you a name that only you and him know because he wants you to dwell secure with him forever. Your name is established forever. Exactly what the Babylites desired is exactly what we'll get when we go stand in heaven with Jesus because of what he did for us on the cross. This is a beautiful thing, a beautiful thing. Even more than this, the Babylites understood that unity was one of the most important things in order for them to do what they had felt that they were supposed to do. And God actually affirmed that in them. God comes down and says, you know what, they're unified and because of this, nothing's impossible. And so he scatters them, and that kind of forces them to go their own ways in a lot of ways. Well, what happens in the New Testament? The exact reverse of this. In Acts chapter 2, verses 5 through 18, we see the Holy Spirit descends upon the church, and they're all speaking in tongues, and it says that they're all speaking what? The same language. <laughs> they actually all understand each other, and we see this curse of Babel reversed for the church. Why? Because Christ became a curse. Scripture says, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus hangs on a tree, takes off that curse, and now reverses what was laid upon mankind at Babel, and they are all now speaking a language in which they can all understand each other. Why? Because there's unity there, and what happens? Nothing becomes impossible. And so this little tiny uh, 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 sect of Christianity with 11 dudes, right, who saw Jesus rise, who none of them were educated, none knew what was going on literally changed the history of mankind and all of a sudden in the middle of acts we see somebody say they've turned the whole world upside down why they were speaking the same language which was glory be to christ believe in him he is the resurrected king and they're telling that to everybody they're doing exactly what the babylites were doing but under the blessing and providence of god this was god's will and so they were now interacting within that. So important is unity. This is what Jesus prays for in John chapter 17. And so 
Where does that leave us in a lot of ways? We see the redemption that's offered in Christ, the reversal of the story or the fulfillment, the better picture of this story. Where does that leave us? Well, do we submit to God in his way or do we try to grade against that and create our own way? The longing for a true city is a good thing. That's not what the story is telling us. It's a godly thing except that true city is found in Jesus. The longing to have an eternal name, listen, that's a good thing. Don't let the lies of uh, of what Satan tries to tell you that this is a prideful thing. No, no, no. It's good to desire to have a name that lasts forever. It's just that name is found in the name above all names and the king of kings. He's the one that gives us our name. We can't make a great enough name for ourselves. Jesus makes a name for us. And he's the one that establishes this forever. Here's the beautiful thing about this story. Revelation chapter 20 to verse 22, this is God's will, which means what? It's going to happen. Revelation chapter 20 through 22 is not a nice suggestion, and it's not a if. This is what is going to happen. No matter what, no matter how much human plans try to thwart the will of God, this is what is going to happen. We have to ask, what side of the fence are we on here? Right? Do we submit to the beauty of Christ and the fragrance of who he is? Do we taste him more and more? Do we long to have what exactly the Babylites desire, but through God's plan, or are we going to try to take it our own? And if we're honest, like we said, a lot of us are Babylites, and we want our plan and then pray that God blesses that plan rather than seeking his plan in our lives. The beautiful thing is, is that even when we're Babylites, even when we become tower builders and we're idolaters and we worship the things that God tells us not to worship, we know that through the cross, we get the forgiveness of all of those sins and we can reorient ourselves back under the will of God over and over and over and over again. This is the beauty of the gospel, that we get to continually be repentant and to try to get back into the favor, into the beauty, into the blessing of God as we submit to him and find all of who we are in the cross of Christ. Rather than trying to build a tower, rather than trying to be good enough, is what we usually say, to build it, to get to heaven, we realize that heaven came down to purify us, to make us good, Because of what Jesus has done, he's giving us a new heart. He's changing who we are, and now we get to try to submit to that plan. And we continue to cling to the cross through that over and over and over again. Friends, be be honest with yourselves. Whose tower, whose kingdom are you trying to build? Yours, the Tower of Babel, or the kingdom of the Lord? This one is going to be accomplished But we have to ask, what side of the fence are we on? And I pray that as a church, we would, A, be unified, just like they were in Acts 2, that we would desire to exalt disciples' sin for the glory of our king, and that we'd be running that same race together no matter what the cost is, but that we would also know that even when we do rebel, we have a sweet, sweet Savior in Jesus, that he forgives us and he washes us clean, that we don't have to end up like Babel, But rather, when we realize we're walking down that path, we can submit to him. Because here's the truth, friends. Scripture says that Christ got crucified outside the city. Why? So that those of us who who should be outside the eternal city, the new Jerusalem, can be brought into the presence of God. Christ was crucified outside the camp so that we who belong outside the camp can be brought into the camp. And we can have no more tears, no more suffering, a name forever, never to be scattered again. You know how much I hate like when people move from the well? It's like the worst thing on earth, right? (laughs) 
Literally, that will never happen in eternity. Why? Because we will all be together worshiping our king with all of the saints throughout history. This is what we were designed for. Do we try to get it our own or do we submit to the will of God and realize his plan's better than ours? He knows what he's doing. Friends, he loves you. He knows what he's doing in your life. Submit to that will, amen? Amen. Hey, I love you guys. Let's pray. God, I pray that we would be a people who would submit to your will, God. Lord, you do. You call us to submission. You call us to holiness. For you know that where we are released underneath you is where we find full blessing in you. And so, Jesus, I pray that we would be submissive to your will and to who you are, that we would seek to honor you even within that. God, I know I myself prone to wander, as the hymn says, prone to leave the God I love. I feel it, God. I I want to, to build my own kingdom. I want to exalt my own name. God, would you humble that and rid that from this nasty flesh that's on us? God, help us to desire so deeply your presence and who you are, King. Lord, as we try to build our own towers, as we try to gain our own salvation, as we try to gain our own sanctification, to try to gain our own glory, God, would you help us to see that where you are, submissive to you, this is where we ought to be. God, bless us with that. And when we stumble, please let us be a people who cling to the blood of the cross and let that wash over us, Jesus. Wash over us, Lord. Man, we love you, Christ. Thank you for all that you do. Thank you.